Kia ora. Kofu Now my Welcome to the House. Late last year, Parliament's Standing Orders Committee began meeting to ponder how it might tinker with Parliament's rules, at least with the rules that will apply for the next three-year session of Parliament post-election. Quite a few interesting people turned up to offer the committee their own suggestions and ideas. One of them particularly caught my attention, partly because of the unbent surety and passion in his strongly argued contentions, and partly because he happened to be a former Prime Minister. Sir Geoffrey Palmer, he was only an MP for four terms, but was responsible for an astonishing amount of parliamentary and constitutional reform. And while it is very nearly 33 years since he ended his term as Prime Minister, he has never stopped imagining better ways of doing things. We met recently in his office at the University of Wellington Law School, just across the road from Parliament, because I was keen to hear more of his ideas about the current threats to, and potential selves for, our democracy. The perils for democracy arising from a great many issues that we've had, both nationally and internationally, they've weakened the prospects for democracy generally. It does seem to be kind of on the skids a bit at the moment, doesn't it? Well, the modern scholarship, which I've been through pretty carefully, says that rot and decay can easily set in and has in many countries. Uh, And uh, you only have to look at places like Hungary uh, and what is going on in Russia. Uh, And indeed, uh, a lot of the African countries, there are many more dictatorships than there used to be. Uh, Populism is very rampant and populism... Uh, really stems from authoritarianism. And authoritarian populism is a sort of dangerous competitor to democracy these days. And the international research shows that democracy is not nearly as fashionable as it was. And not nearly as redoubtable as we might imagine. No. It's very fragile. And it's fragile because democratic societies operate on openness. They operate on free speech and that allows the opponents to use it against them. The development of social media has made the conduct of democratic government greatly more difficult. Many diverse voices, but enormous confusion, and a great tendency towards conspiracy theories. None of those things are helpful if you're going to have a stable democracy. So what should we do then? Well, what we need to do is to take a very big look at our own democracy. The problem is this, there are so many issues crowding in to the political agenda. When you have emergencies, when you have COVID, that had an enormous effect on the system of government. You can't do everything at once in any system of government. But we've had the pandemic that produced a loss of social cohesion. That loss of social cohesion has to be recovered or you get dangers to your democratic future. And, And that really comes down to the central democratic institution in New Zealand, which is Parliament. Now, the Parliament in New Zealand is rather a strange beast because it has 120 members, it has no upper house, We live in a country with few checks and balances. The result of that is that the government dominates the parliament like a colossus. The government has 28 or 27, it might be now, uh, MPs in the government. uh, And 
the speaker, you add the speaker. So that's about nearly 30 members who are making the decisions. They're not part of the accountability mechanism. And another 30 MPs will also be government MPs, even if they're not in the government. So that only leaves, well, 60 MPs, if you're lucky, to watch the government. And, and, and the difficulty about that is that the Westminster system of government is based on a very clear theory that the executive government, that is to say the ministers and the public servants, are accountable to the parliament. Yep. But they can't be accountable to the parliament if there aren't enough members to do the work. The MPs in New Zealand are drastically overworked, that they do not have enough time to do all the work that is on the order paper for legislation, far less than to look closely at the appropriations, which are enormous sums of money these days, and and they have to be, the estimates have to be considered quite rapidly. Nobody could do that job effectively even if they were completely free to work on it and do nothing else, but they're not. Many MPs sit on several select committees. Uh, Many MPs have to do a lot of work in their own electorates and and do other sorts of work. They only sit in Parliament three days a week. This Parliament in New Zealand still sits less hours than the House of Commons... Or substantially fewer. Substantially fewer is true. And if your central democratic institution isn't sitting, your accountability mechanisms are attenuated. So you have, at the moment, not enough people with not enough time to really keep an eye on government. That's the truth. And and that's a danger. And so you would do what? I would increase the number of members to 150, Mm -hmm. uh, and that may not be enough. But I would also reduce the size of the executive. I don't think you need 30 people almost in there. I would cap it at 20. They'd have a lot more portfolios each. Well, yeah, but the problem with that is that it's it's siloed and there's a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of things. It's much harder to coordinate. Right. Cabinet is an instrument of coordination. That is what it is for. And, and you can't coordinate if there's so much diverse activity going on all around the place and some of the departments have to look after seven or eight portfolios. That's not sensible. Potentially with fewer ministers you would actually be more efficient anyway. You'd be more efficient. But the key thing is more MPs so you've got more people watching those ministers. That's, that's the point. I don't favour an upper house. An upper house was got rid of in 1950 by the National Party because it wasn't adding any value, and and I think that was correct, and I wouldn't bring it back. But what you should do is to have much better select committee procedures, much more support to the select committees to ask the questions that need to be asked. They need to have more access to experts than they've got and they need to hold the government to account more rigorously. I would use the upper house chamber, which is still in the parliament, to have extended select committee hearings in public uh, with more MPs sitting. To hold inquiries. To hold inquiries and, and also to do very important legislation that way. When I talk to MPs about this, about increasing the size of the house, about there being more MPs, no one disagrees. They all say, oh, yes, that, that's, you know, that would be very useful and much needed, but I can't imagine it happening. Well, why not? 
there has to be some leadership given to yeah. these issues. Everyone seems to be scared that the public would disapprove of it, even if they all agree. Well, well, whether the public would disagree with it or not, the public want better government than they're getting. The strains on the government system have been from exogenous factors like the pandemic, yeah. like the war in Ukraine. Yeah, there's an awful lot to deal with, there, isn't there? It, there's so much that no one has had to deal with as much as that ever before. The 24-hour news cycle has been a disaster for democratic politics. Our fourth estate is highly weakened. The newspapers are much weaker than they were. The newsrooms are all reduced. Uh, the quality of reporting is not adequate. The media does its best, but it's been seriously weakened. So what would you change about how select committees work? Uh, I would change it. First of all, by having fewer of them and bigger. Secondly, I would make sure they had independent advice available to them. Yeah. When I went to the parliament, yeah. you couldn't tell the difference between the executive and the parliament. You couldn't because ministers used to sit on select committees. They were sitting in judgment on the stuff that they themselves had decided. That's not accountability. Well, thank goodness that doesn't happen anymore. No, but still just as bad because the departments have a monopoly on the advice for the most part at select committees and that's part of the executive. The executive is so big and so powerful in New Zealand it dominates the parliament like a colossus. So when uh, a minister puts a bill forward and the bill goes to a select committee for... Uh, their consideration, but the people that give them advice on that bill are the same people that actually wrote the legislation, right? Made the policy. Usually, but not always. There is some capacity to get independent advice, but not enough. This is no resources. The resources all go to the executive. The executive is enormous, because, of course, it includes all the departments. But Parliament's actually pretty tiny. It's very small, and, and it's too small to do the work that it has to do in a modern democracy. And you need as much law as a much bigger country. Yeah. So we, it's, it's not when I say Parliament's small, I'm not just talking about the MPs. I'm talking about the staff. I know. I know. Exactly. There are very few. They're very clever people, but yes. there's not that many of them. No, there are not. And, and we've got a lot of issues and you can't get to the bottom of all of them. And that's why we pass a lot of bad law. The problem, the problem with it is the Westminster system is based on adversary politics. We have to get away from that. You cannot have... How do you do that? That's human nature. Well, it's not necessarily human nature. In the Scandinavian countries, they, they have much more higher levels of consensus than we manage to secure here because the adversarial system encourages knock-down, drag-out political fights that do nothing good for policy. Uh, and, and the whole point about it is this. You cannot have general elections every three years and then uh, say that you're going to have an enduring policy on climate change or an enduring policy on, on health reforms because every political party wants to put in their oar and decide that they want to do it a different way and you've got no, no capacity to have a sustainable policy. And you need sustainable policy in a lot of areas and, and the climate change transformations that are going to come here, which are necessary, will be enormously disruptive. But everyone keeps putting them off because they don't like the prospect of transformation. But yeah. the transformation will come. So we've dealt with the fact that there are not enough MPs and with the fact that select committees need more resources at their disposal in order to keep a good watch on government. Now, you also want to talk about disinformation. Yes, I do. 
We're sitting here in the law school at the Victoria University of Wellington overlooking the parliament. For a couple of weeks when the occupation was on over there, I wasn't allowed to use my office. I couldn't come in here. It had to be closed. There were tents outside my... Um, on the lawn out on front. On the lawn, they? and mm. they were, one outside here had a, a family of, with two children in the tent. That event was fuelled by conspiracy theory, and the Paula Penfold study of that tells you one thing. New Zealand is not immune from this. Our sense of cohesion can be damaged as easily as anyone else's, uh, and a lot of this stuff was imported from the Trumpian side of the United States, yeah, who are still at work on this. Uh, but the problem here is that in New Zealand, if you're going to preserve your sense of community and togetherness, you've got to do something about disinformation. It's very hard to know what to do. I can't think of how you could do that without turning off all of the international social media, and I don't imagine the New Zealand population would be keen on that. No, I don't think you can turn it off, but you have to, you have to teach people to be sceptical about it. One of the things that I am very hot on and why I wrote this book with my granddaughter, uh, Democracy in Aotearoa, New Zealand, a survival guide, is, is that you need to teach people in words of one syllable how the existing complex system works so they can navigate their way around it. There is no instruction in New Zealand schools on civics. There needs to be, and it's just as important as New Zealand history. But there's been a reluctance to do it because people think it's teaching politics. It isn't. It's teaching how governance works, how the decisions are taken, who takes them, who has the power, who doesn't. That's information you must have if you're going to survive in a democratic country. And it's also information that you must propagate if you want your democracy to thrive and flourish. Now, there's another set of things going on here. Uh, for example, take the Official Information Act. There have been several efforts by the law commissions at various times to reform the Official Information Act. None of it has come to pass. Ministers keep saying they'll reform the Official Information Act, but they never get round to actually doing it. And the reason is that ministers don't like the Official Information Act. I know that because when I was Deputy Prime Minister, I had to get a special advisor in from Justice to go around the ministerial offices to see that it was followed. Uh, now, the problem is transparency is fundamental in a democracy. Transparency is very important in preventing corruption. We need to have a lot of it. And we need to fix our official information so not only in theory but in practice, openness occurs. Openness is the best protection against corruption. And it's very easy to corrupt the political system by money. Uh, and we've got a big report from the independent uh, review of the electoral system which wants to restrict very, very heavily campaign contributions to political parties. No individual, they recommend, will be allowed to give more than $30,000 in any electoral cycle. That will be capped. No companies can make contributions and no other organisations can either. And I think that is entirely a sound protection, but I'm sure it will have trouble getting through. That was Sir Geoffrey Palmer, former New Zealand Prime Minister and lifelong campaigner for reform. You've been listening to The House. It's a whakarango koe ki te whare. This programme is produced with funding from Parliament's Office of the Clerk. Matua.